is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. CDC says most Americans live in places where healthy people can safely stop wearing masks. New guidelines that shift from looking at COVID case counts to a more holistic view, COVID in communities. In developing countries, and international aid organizations have spent the better part of a year asking for more vaccine doses to be available outside of the Western countries. We'll take a closer look at why that's still not happening. We start with masks coming off. CDC easing up and masking requirements comes as Los Angeles County relaxes its indoor mask rules and after California as a whole ended its statewide indoor mask mandate. With us is Dr. Andrew Neumer, professor of population health and disease prevention at UC Irvine. So, uh, doctor, with states and counties across the country dropping mask mandates like they're you know hot, was this move by the CDC inevitable? I mean, I, th- I think a lot of the KNX listeners are probably, you know, in the same situation. It's and it's understandable because the communication has been really poor. Um, I personally am vaccinated. I still mask when I go to indoor places outside my own home. Uh, so at the grocery store, I'm wearing a mask um, and I'm wearing a, a good quality mask. Um, you know, I mean, people, some of your listeners are, are not masking now and are against uh, having to mask and, and, and they won't be required to anymore. Um, you know, some of your listeners are, are going to be very cautious. And, you know, I, I would like to tell them that they should feel comfortable continuing to mask. And uh, I suspect that very few of your listeners are simply following the CDC guidelines to the letter and, and are doing exactly what the CDC says and therefore will will change their behavior now as a result of this announcement. But, um, you know, I'm, so it, it is complicated. I mean, I mean, masks are a barrier between our respiratory tract and, and the rest of the, the world. And so um, it, it, it helps prevent other people from getting sick if we're sick and it, and it does help us from getting infected if, if people around us are infected. So it's something that I'm doing, but I understand, you know, that people don't necessarily want to do it forever. And, you know, we should keep our powder dry for, uh, there's going to be more waves of COVID. Uh, and so, you know, it, we're, we're coming out of a wave now and into a trough, thank goodness. And hopefully we stay in that trough for a long, long time, but I, d- I don't think we've seen the last of COVID. And, and so we should, just be flexible, I guess. Is yeah, the name of the I mean, game. to that point, I think you've even been on the air before saying kind of if if we're going to get to this point, maybe this point that we're in, give people the spring and the summer a little bit, because if they do say, hey, it's winter, we got something, you got to put them back on, then there's probably going to be more people apt to put them back on if they've had a break. I, I said that on, on your air, uh, if I'm not mistaken, last June. Yes. <laughs> what what comes around goes around yeah, comes just, around just you know? bouncing so, back and forth in so this world I, i'm just curious so when w- would somebody such as yourself when would you feel comfortable no longer wearing a mask inside a, a grocery store or a movie theater or, or whatever since covid is not and i think you're absolutely right about that is not going to go away anytime in the near future because well, we've heard from listeners too who have said you know i'm going to take them off when the doctors take them off yeah exactly yeah right so when are you taking yours off <laughs> well that's a good that's a good question um I, I mean to be to be clear i i i have you know enjoyed 
uh, restaurant dining, uh, including indoor restaurants. So uh, since I can't feed myself through a mask, I have, you know, <laughs> in that sense, you know, I've taken it off already. Uh, you know, the grocery store um, is kind of the same experience to me, whether whether I mask or not. Um, so uh, I, I've kind of got, gotten used to masking. I probably... So wait a minute. So, so wait, hold, wait, 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 wait. So, I mean, so, so, so let, let's now let's be I honest. I mean, none of okay. it makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, no, no, right, right, and so, especially Orange County, yeah, L.A. Right. County. You go over the line, and it's like, yeah. oh. So with, with all due respect, Doctor, aren't you kind of like we all are? Aren't you sort of deluding yourself because it's you're taking it off to eat in a restaurant? I do too. You go into the grocery store where probably your exposure is less because you're only in it for maybe five minutes as opposed to eating for two hours, and then you put it back on. Isn't it just that you're creating, as we all do, this sort of psychological sense of security that really isn't there? Uh, I mean, not exactly, although I do see what you're saying. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot more people in, 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 a, in a crowded grocery store than, than in, a, in a restaurant, and uh, you are there for less time, but there's more people um, you know, I, I, th I think there is the risk isn't zero in a, in a grocery store of, of getting a, you know, a breakthrough infection. And uh, I just feel like you, to me, it's the same difference whether I shop with a mask on or not. I mean, that's that's the, the end, that's the bottom line. Like I, I leave the grocery store and, I'm, and I, I don't I don't feel ha less happy if, if I did it with a mask on. Uh, and so I do it with a mask on because it, it gives me a small benefit and uh, and the cost is de minimis. Uh, you know, I, I, if I, I, I'm not going to go to a restaurant and watch my friends eat while I sit there with, with a mask. Uh, so I, don't <laughs> I do hope it. not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, be, before you I was having fun. Yes. Enjoy your yeah. meal. But before I was vaccinated, you know, I, I went for, for quite a long uh, period without going to restaurants. Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're, you know, I hope the listeners are vaccinated and boosted and, you know, I, I would gladly trade all the masking for, you know, much, much higher uh, vaccination rates. But I mean, I, you know, masks do have a role to play in this. Um, I, I don't think they're a purely fictional benefit. Um, you know, another another aspect to this is indoor air quality. I mean, if, if people aren't going to mask, uh, you know, we can do things that will help them avoid COVID, like improving the indoor air quality. We can we can scrub air with UV light and we can circulate it and we can do outside air replacement to make air uh, healthier to breathe for everybody, you know, whether or not they're masked. And I, and I think that's going to be something we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the coming years. All right. Dr. Andrew Normer, we got to run Professor of Population Health Disease Prevention, UC Irvine. Doc, thanks for coming back. We've talked about it often on Coronavirus Daily, and you'll likely have seen the stats with roughly 65% of the U.S. population fully vaccinated against COVID-19. We're toward the back of the pack among developed countries. Well, we have plenty of doses, not enough willing takers, and much of the rest of the world, they need greater access to the vaccines. The calls continue for pharmaceutical companies to make more doses available for the low-income countries. Our partners at KYW News Radio Philadelphia looked at why two years into this pandemic and well over a year after COVID vaccines hit the market, doses still aren't finding their way to poorer areas. Host Matt Leon talks with Dr. Joe Amon, Director of Global Health at Drexel University's School of Public Health. 
The idea of vaccinating the world against COVID-19, it's something I've heard talked about in broad strokes and maybe focused here and there, but how important is it? How critical is it that we eventually get to this? It's critical on a couple of levels. I mean, on one level, we want to vaccinate as many people as possible around the globe to save lives. On another level, we want to vaccinate people around the world to prevent the emergence of new variants of the COVID virus, uh, which will inevitably cross borders and come into the U.S. How realistic is it that we can pull this off, given the factors we have on the table right now? Scientifically, there isn't a question that we could pull this off if we chose it to. The problem hasn't been the science as much as the willingness and the commitment and the political will to get vaccines to low-income countries that don't have their own manufacturing base um, and aren't paying the amount of money that Western countries are paying for the vaccine. I've heard people talk about a lack of infrastructure in a lot of places, that we can give the vaccine, but they don't really have the mechanisms in place to be able to get the shots in arms like we are in a lot of countries. How much does that factor in? You know, I've worked in very remote countries in in, um, sub-Saharan Africa. All of them have vaccination campaigns annually that reach children in extremely remote locations. People are used to vaccines. They're willing to travel, you know, to clinics and to sites where vaccines are being distributed. Childhood vaccination levels, even in extremely poor countries, are above 70%. I don't think the problem is really a logistical problem of getting the vaccines to everyone in in these countries. I think the problem is really a question of, of political will. It would help, you know, if we built manufacturing capacity in low-income countries to expand the access to these vaccines. But there's still issues about uh, intellectual property rights and other things that prevent, even where there is the science, the ability to produce the vaccines and distribute it. Have there been any moves made you think have been particularly helpful in helping us get to this goal? Things maybe that people don't realize how important it is or, or how much it moves the needle? Has, has anything been done that you applaud that helps us get us closer to this goal? The most recent news is from earlier this month. The World Health Organization established a technology transfer hub in South Africa, and they just completed making the Moderna COVID vaccine in the lab in South Africa without direct guidance from Moderna. So it was proof of concept that it could be made in a low-income country without uh, having to make it in a, you know, in a pharmaceutical lab in Europe or in the U.S. and shipped into these countries. The problem is it's still, it's, it's not at a level of, of full-scale production yet. It's really just at a level of proof of concept. There's a lot of other places in the world, too, that can be, that can be sites for manufacture of vaccine, including you know, India, Thailand, and those are areas that could be scaled up further. How much of a challenge, specifically the mRNA vaccines that we've become so used to, the fact that they have to be held at these very, very cold temperatures, how much of 
uh, challenge is that? Because I know that was a challenge when these first came out for places in the U.S. Where does that rate as far as things we have to overcome? Well, there is experience with just regular cold chains for vaccines in low-income countries. I think the understanding of mRNA vaccine technology has gotten a little bit better, and it's been established that you could you could use more of the regular cold chain technology and still have viable vaccines. I think there's also a number of ways in which having kind of intermediate technologies that can extend from the extra, you know, cold storage for limited amounts of time to get it into the field and get it into arms is also coming into play. There's a lot of technology now too that you can monitor that the cold chain has been maintained. And so there are digital probes that will indicate if the cold chain has been broken at any point so that you're not vaccinating people with, with not viable vaccine. So I think that the, that initial fear that you needed to have this super cold chain on you, it would be hard to do that in low-income countries is, is being alleviated a bit. Wasn't there, I remember, I think it might've been the end of last year, early this year, the school in Texas, I think it might've been the Baylor College of Medicine had developed a vaccine that was more traditional, wasn't mRNA. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but they kind of relinquished the rights to it and, and put it on the world stage. Will that have a, a big effect? So yes, that, that was Baylor. And the scientist behind that, Dr. Peter Hotez, has been a champion for you know science-based approaches to COVID generally, as well as developing this vaccine and offering it to anyone sort of, here's the recipe, here's the approach. And there's been a slow take up on that. I think partly it speaks to the power of the pharmaceutical industry to kind of continue to promote their own vaccines. I think partly it's because of the lack of capacity in a lot of countries that need vaccines. The fact is the reality right now is that only something like 4% of people living in low-income countries have been fully vaccinated. And you know that's not going to cut it. So I think there's going to be a number of different things that have to be done simultaneously. The WHO efforts in South Africa is one, taking up the Baylor vaccine. Again, technology transfer, building up the capacity for that to be manufactured locally in a lot of settings is another. And also for the pharmaceutical companies that have been making billions of dollars from the COVID vaccines to start sending more of their vaccine stock into these countries as well. One of the things that we've seen in a lot of low-income countries, though, is, is that there's not always the same amount of, of morbidity and mortality, partly because the countries have a larger percentage of the population that's younger. They may have less comorbidities or, or underlying health factors. And so what should be prioritized in a lot of those countries is vaccinating healthcare personnel, vaccinating school teachers vaccinating a segment of the population. So we don't necessarily have to get as high of a level of coverage there because there's been a combination of, of infection already and natural immunity that we can augment with booster shots essentially for vaccines and ensuring that those most at risk are, are protected. How would you rate the job the U.S. government has done in trying to, to vaccinate the world? I've heard you know, you hear press reports of 
donating X amount of vaccines that we bought to other countries and stuff like that. Are there other things that the government is doing to help or not really, or are there things that we're not aware of that are helping to move the needle? I don't think this has been a priority for the current administration. And I think that the model of donating vaccines is is a short-term crisis model and the COVID pandemic is out of the short-term crisis phase. And we need to really start thinking about ensuring greater capacity to produce vaccines because those vaccines may need to shift in the, you know, in the coming year to cover different types of variants and just kind of having low-income countries be last in line with each new you know, development of a vaccine is, is not going to really give us the answer we want. If we were to really try to do this right, what would be a reasonable time frame that you think we could, you know, quote unquote, vaccinate the world? How long would it take? Well, these countries, a lot of them have expanded program on immunization weeks every year where they do blitzes of vaccinations. They have a lot of healthcare personnel at sort of nurse, nurses assistant levels that can get out. You know, people are used to mobilizing for, for health causes. And so I think that um, if the production side was, was sorted out, the delivery side w- would happen quickly. So to me, that's, that's more in the scale of, you know, a year than it is in a scale of a decade. We end today's Coronavirus Daily with a story out of the Just What We Needed file. It's not about COVID-19, but rather the rapid spread of another virus, the avian flu. Since early January, a really strong form of avian influenza has been working its way across poultry farms in the United States. Thousands of turkeys were infected in Kentucky and Indiana. Then there was an outbreak of bird flu in commercial chicken farms in Virginia and Delaware. And bird flu has been diagnosed in migratory birds flying from Maine to Florida. Now, therein lies the concern that migrating birds are only just starting to spread bird flu all across the country as we get closer to the spring months. The public health officials insist no threats of a breakout of avian flu among us, the humans, nor is there a threat to the poultry supplies yet. They're keeping a close eye on this particular virus closely related to an Asian strain that's infected hundreds of people since 2003. Most of them, though, had worked with the infected poultry. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 